Welcome to the Adapting Places podcast. I'm going to continue this series on decision making under uncertainty as I'm making my way through transcribing a lot of uh, the interviews that have uh, come through my way as part of my PhD. Um, so. I'm hoping that as I talk through these things, some of the insights from data kind of uh, come out and I'm no longer just stuck talking about uh, somebody else's literature, uh, which is quite exciting. Thank you that I spent four years in this uh, PhD process. So I covered off some basic assumptions about uncertainty as the default in the previous episode, which um, I experimented with uh, uh, adding music uh, to it, which I was using through Anchor, which is Spotify's podcast recording app. And turns out if you just, if you use music from Spotify, the podcast is only available on Spotify. So looks like the audience has shrunk uh, or I'm being shadow banned. That's a new thing. <laughs> yeah, the numbers have gone from 12 listeners to one. So, to that one person that's hanging on, stay with it. Uh, yeah, right, so I'm going to talk about a little bit about decision making under uncertainty. Uh, and I'm going to try not to mix too much of uh, how we can make decisions about what's good, good knowledge, kind of the, how can we uh, make science about decision making, uh, and then on the other hand, the actual decision making by people. But it's inevitable for me to confuse the two. I've just noticed, you know, I've tried to split the first conversation away, like just making some assumptions about uh, what reality is like, uh, but discussing how we can know reality, so questions of uh, the big word epistemology Um, I find it really difficult to then split away from uh, the ways that I'm finding people think so it's yeah it's what some people call a naturalist tendency which makes me think that if if I keep seeing people think a certain way well it's likely that that kind of thinking is also in science if it's human science, even though we follow processes and procedures that try to protect us from the downfalls, from the the biases that pop up when we make decisions under uncertainty. And I think it's uh, very important here to to mention that I've heavily read around the works of Kahneman and Tversky, who are the, what have become popular through behavioral economics. in more popular books, you know, after them, Taylor and Sunstein are people that write about how this decision making actually uh, can be used for policy making. Uh, so it's important to mention that. But also, I've got this other side of the literature which doesn't focus as much on the the biases that people 
have when they make decisions under uncertainty, but on um, how the detail of how they actually make decisions from the first person perspective and their justifications for that. So it does seem that this kind of a decision inevitably is one about the methods of studying the world and people in the world. Uh, because if you take the, the what's called the heuristics and biases literature, you know, for short, the Kahneman-Tversky, the focus on you know, people's kind of illogical shortcomings, well, very often that tends to be done in a more behavioral, observational, from the outside perspective way. Whereas on the other hand, if you want to actually have a glimpse into, well, okay, tell me how you actually made that decision, why, those reasons, that tends to be more uh, psychological and from the first person perspective, phenomenological, as people say. Kind of a, and that, that's, that doesn't seem to have that much of a great status in quote-unquote hard science, but I'd argue it's the only way you can actually get to see through someone else's eyes for a bit. I mean, it's difficult. People try to to to, to argue that neuroscience gives us evidence for that, and neuroscience can be a tool uh, used together with first-person accounts, but it, do, it doesn't really describe uh, experiences and decisions that are made from the first person. To bring it down to, to the topic of my interest, which is, you know, how people choose where to live, uh, and before I actually talk about my PhD, I've been finding it very interesting to see how so many uh, celebrities are openly talking about changing where they're uh, going to live, you know, after the coronavirus pandemic, you know, big life decisions. And I already did have that hunch that, you know, moving where you live should be considered a much bigger decision than it tends to be. So a lot of times it tends to be considered as a, well, at least in the literature, I think people actually do ponder those questions quite a bit. But in the literature is, you know, get a job, where the jobs are. And then in practice, it's, you know, jobs, 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 get the jobs and then people would come. Um, so it's been interesting, yeah, like the exodus from California to Texas. And again, it will be an exaggeration to say Texas. because I think it's, you know, people going to the hub of creativity and openness that Austin is. I mean, I, I say these things just because I've heard them, to be fair. I've actually not researched Austin. I know very little. So I don't want to expose my own biases about what I think about these places, but it's just, it's interesting to to see how there's this alignment of choosing where to live and your personal uh, fit with the place. Uh, you know, in the podcasting world, Joe Rogan, one of the biggest podcasts, if not the biggest, you know, big Spotify deal, millions of dollars, and then moving to Texas and then trying to pull people with him to create uh, you know a cluster let's call it there in Austin and then Elon Musk has moved so thinking about those important nodes of people I remember when I was working 
in, you know, in a town trying to attract people that didn't want to live there. I was wondering who those nodes are. And in that case, it used to be just uh, women looking to settle down and have a kid. You know, it's uh, obviously that's very broad, but then when you start thinking about who exactly, and it's, it's a more difficult question. Um, so I guess I'm thinking about in geography, the location of choice literature tends to talk about agglomeration. Uh, what they call them? Agglomeration economies that talk about how there is a benefit to being around others interested in what you're interested, you know, from a business perspective or sharing supply chains, you know, knowledge spilling over. But then it's always a circular argument how that actually comes about you know nobody thinks about okay so you know when does uh, a sand pile become a sand pile from a few grains you have one person so one joe rogan and elon musk when does austin become and texas become the california uh, of america and then does california actually have the resilience of what's what's there already doesn't have strong enough quality of place to keep attracting others or has it been you know kind of using up the the, the equity of its brand over the you know the last years and things were already kind of crap there <laughs> and we were just seeing from the outside you know i've never been to california but uh, you could see hints that it wasn't what it probably was before and I'm not just thinking about Hollywood, but also, you know, Silicon Valley, when you think about the innovators uh, that used to be there, and now it's more about market speculation. Uh, so have they been hollowed out already? So uh, interesting to think about it that way, but also maybe just some people want to prove themselves, you know, whether they can do it on their own somewhere. So that's an interesting motivation to think about, just from kind of the news article. So, going back to the, the literature then, how can one say that moving away from California is you know, based on some biases? So you'd have perceptions about Texas being from the outside if you're Joe Rogan. And then, of course you do, because you haven't got that much experience, but what information does it give us for that kind of a, a question? Very little, I'd argue doesn't mean that that research program isn't very useful for other types of decisions where there's already kind of a set of choices that are predefined you know kind of like the domains in which that program has thrived you know nudging people with uh, policy but big life decisions that have multiple complex intertwined factors I think it's much better studied if you ask people in detail about their experience and kind of listing information through you know, multiple questions into them what what feels mundane to them because they've either like not thought about it or don't want to delve that deep because it can get a bit existential. And I'm finding this with my research and you know, I've got an interesting question, you know, after I go through people's history of where they've lived and how they've changed and how they've actually made decisions in the detail where I ask 
Or do you think you've made rational decisions? Uh, looking back. And it's the theme that's slightly coming out. You know, obviously it's all tentative, so I'm speculating here. But one thing that I'm thinking about quite a bit is rational seems to be what you'd be able to justify to others, you know, be seen from the outside to be rational or you know for someone from the outside looking in because they don't know exactly what's going on you'd have to make that assumption that somebody is rational and obviously within the everyday language that's you know being reasonable i'm thinking about examples where that could, that meant something different cross-culturally because i had a participant from north america and one from asia where the North American participant saw uh, the decisions they made as irrational when they were not following their own uh, perceptions, but kind of foregoing those for the sake of listening to others. That was seen as irrational. Uh, but on the other hand, the Asian participants saw uh, following their own views rather than those of their parents, uh, those of other, as being irrational. So there, there is a, rationality doesn't stack, stack up cross-culturally, and that's been one of the key starting points for me, because it's uh, one of the foundations of more standard economic approaches to decision-making that talk about you know, let's assume people are rational at the individual level and then extrapolate from that to the aggregate. Uh, or actually, they just have aggregate data and they make up a story that seems rational at the individual level without taking into account the fact that there is a scale transformation uh, that might be happening there where like, it's just not talking about the same thing. Just, just as... I'll go back to methodological question but just as measuring you know the neuron signals in neuroscience uh, assesses things at one scale and asking people about their lived experience at another that's what's what's happening here you know there's a scale transformation you're looking at a different thing and it doesn't mean it's not grounded in physical in the case of, you know, lived experience. I'm not making any crazy claims, but it's just wh wherever you focus, it does seem to be better studied by different methods. And the assumptions of economists about, you know, they, you know they're specialists in the macro, that make that claim, and then they try to make a story of what the individual behavior is like in the first person perspective. Mm. It doesn't work that way. But... Um, I guess the last thing I want to talk about and just to make this very practical is that if you're working in a you know, any place management role or interesting 
I found a <laughs> an article in an, in an encyclopedia on uh, human geography that describes this territorial management. I actually like that. His hints at animal territoriality <laughs> and how it was uh, entirely a practical endeavor that tries to balance conflicting uh, drives. Doesn't even pretend to be scientific. Uh, that was a very good description of what the job seems to be for people. So if what I've been talking about is, you know, too theoretical, to make it very practical, I've already made the case for, you know, using qualitative insight-led research, uh, not just data from aggregates, you know, from your social media and whatever, and all of these things, it's, it's cheaper and less burdensome to just monitor aggregate stats of how people make decisions and then make a story retrospectively and uh sorry not retrospectively but uh breaking it down to the first person and just seeing you know oh people have these stereotypes of our place and that's why they're not gonna come but double checking with qualitative insight talking to people deep listening i actually hope you learn where your own bias is about from your own first-person perspective about what you guessed might be not exactly as you thought so yeah i'd recommend it yeah and it doesn't need to be huge you know i've talked about how to do that in one of the other series and yeah, that's not to knock uh, monitoring analytics absolutely not uh, but i think in the aggregate you know the the detail that might give you an insight for a good marketing campaign is just gets lost and i could never really pin down where marketing kind of lost its grounding in finding a qualitative insight for a good campaign to then being more analytics driven i need to look through the history of of these things uh, but you know that's obviously marketing more generally not just the place marketing um, I guess uh, a lot yeah that just also makes me think about something I probably mentioned a few times already but it's, uh, it's been a big realization of mine so because it's not that biases don't exist but to me when I like, got introduced into that literature and delve deep it was so exciting because i felt like i was smarter than others and then i realized that these are things uh, even if i'm aware of there's nothing i can do about so i realized they were just starting to map what our you know human nature is like whether you like it or not and you can't undo it but that became a miserable place to live from and uh, the points i've been making about how to live with that knowledge is that you know yes you're biased and that doesn't mean being bad intention you know all these things if you want to remove from that lexicon a bias in that literature is like a more just systematic deviation from the expected rational behavior it just means that if you're like that you have to always get another person to check in on you and just when you're reasoning 
being reasonable is kind of reasoning with others. So I always make the case for social reasoning. But hey ho, that comes from the you know, the person that's actually recording a podcast alone rather than in conversation with other people these days. Because uh, I've just selfishly wanted to explore uh, where my ideas take me. But if anyone wants to, to comment, that's going to be very much appreciated. Or give me a shout if you want to do an interview.